right, good morning. It has been quite a morning, I will tell you what. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you made it. What you can't see from your vantage point, there is a pile of cables here on the front of the stage running in every which direction. So if, if before we even kind of get started, will you guys at least give a round of applause to the guys that are in the booth. They are doing everything that they can to make sure we're good today. It was like the worst golf clap ever. Like, it was not exactly a rounding surprise. Okay, so, yes, yes, there it is, yes. So we're here. We're glad that we're here. We're glad that we got our technology caught up to us to some extent. When we approach today, we approach God's Word. We're able to do so in a way that understands that, that this is the reason that we are here if we pull away all the trappings of everything else that we do, we want to make sure that we come back to God's Word week in and week out. So if you've got your copy, if you've got your Bible, if you open it up to Esther, Esther chapter 8 is where we are this morning. Uh, we are going to be dealing today in Esther chapter 8, as we've been moving through this sermon series, uh, we're going to be uh, working our way through this chapter. If you've been with us for a number of weeks, you know that we've been in Esther for a lot of weeks. Uh, we've been here. This is week number 10. So we're kind of rounding the last corner. We've got a couple more weeks. We're going to finish the turn, finish things out. And so we want you to be reminded as we open God's Word, we, we want you to bring your Bible every week. We want you to bring your pen every week. We want you to bring something to write on every week because we do believe that when we open God's Word that there is something that God has to say here that could change the trajectory of your life each and every time that we open it. And that is no different today. And we actually believe that what I'm going to share with you right now, what I'm going to share with you today can actually illuminate the path for your light. That word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let's look at God's word together and see uh, where it's going to take us. And so we better get moving if we're going uh, to do that. So there are some really obscure laws here in the United States. I don't know if you've ever played the game Balderdash. Balderdash is a family favorite for us. There's a whole section of that game called Laughable Laws where you have to try to decide whether the law that we are reading out of the game cards is a law that is completely made up and fabricated by one of your opponents in the game or if it is actually a law that is on the books. So the two laws that I'm sharing with you right now, I will say that they are actual laws on the books. I'm not making them up here this morning. In uh, Prince William County, Virginia, it is illegal for you to have a skunk as a pet. It's illegal for you to have a skunk as a pet. This is a real law on the books. Now, if that's the case, will you go with me for a moment to think through what on earth came about that had this law that had to be enacted? Who was it? I mean, all of us, I'm sure, you look out and you see a skunk in your name and you think, wow, that would be a friendly creature to bring into my home. You cannot have one in your home. So you think they're so cute and they're so wonderful. So imagine, if you will, that you were in an apartment complex, if this is how this story goes. I don't know if this is how this story goes. You're in an apartment complex. You've brought this little furry creature in your home. You've raised him up. You've nurtured him. You've given him the eye drop. And you've, been, you've raised him from a baby. And then he turns on you, quite literally, actually. He turns on you and he sprays you there in the apartment and the smell begins to go down the hallway in the apartment and everybody in the hallway comes pounding on your door. What is that smell? Oh, it's my pet skunk. 
and everybody in the hallway gets in an outroar, and everybody in the apartment complex gets in an outroar, to the extent that the whole apartment complex has to be evacuated. For months, they're scrubbing the apartment complex because of the stench of this skunk. And somebody in that apartment complex says, we have to do something about this so that this never happens again. We are going to the next board meeting, and we are making sure that it is illegal for anyone to ever have a skunk as a pet. Did you know in New York City, New York, if you sell bagels that are altered in any way, shape, or form, whether they have been cut or toasted or buttered, there is an additional eight cents sales tax on that bagel. If that bagel is altered in any way, the moment that that bagel is sliced, it now has become prepared food, where previously before that it was groceries. So for the only bagels, and only if they've been altered in some way. So if you sell a bagel whole, there is no tax. So if you sell a bagel whole, you put the cream cheese on the side, you put the butter on the side, no tax. But if you cut one, so imagine with me, is there a particular bagel shop that's selling bagels, and they're selling them like crazy. And then there's this new bagel company that comes to town, and they are cutting their bagels and they are spreading and slathering them all over with cream cheese. There's something we've got to do. They are ruining this neighborhood. And so we go to the town and we decide to make sure, I don't want to cause any trouble, but wouldn't it be beneficial if every time a bagel was cut that you, Mr. Executive, whoever, gets the eight cents to our local community to make sure nonsense. These are very strange laws indeed. And there are many, many more. Again, this whole game is built around these types of things. Some of them are kind of comical, and some of them are completely absurd, and some of them are actually almost offensive, and they're on the books for sure. What we're looking at today are some strange laws that Mordecai and Esther faced, but this strange law was not just strange. It was absolutely terrifying. A law that was written out with cruel intentionality to exterminate every single person of their race. As we look in Esther chapter 8, you're going to see as we go through this, for such a time as this is the key phrase that we hear in the book of Esther. That's what our mind has in this. As we, as we look at this, we have just a few chapters to go. We've got to think through where have we been and how does it matter and what does it make a difference in our lives. Let's recap very quickly for those of you who haven't been here along the way. There are Jews there in Persia. They are in exile. We meet Esther, we meet Mordecai, they are two cousins. They are living in this capital city called Susa. The king gets rid of his queen at the time, and over a series of events, Esther becomes the new queen. She takes the throne. There's a wicked man named Haman. He is elevated to the king's right hand, and he cannot stand Mordecai. So the king gets, he gets the king to sign off on this degree, decree to wipe out all of Mordecai's family, in fact, all of Mordecai's family tribe, the Jews. Now it would include, of course, Esther, the queen. So these are a problem. These are strange laws, and these are a, a problem for them to have to deal with, and because as they are dealing with it, she, the queen, goes and she shares the plot with the king. And what ends up happening as a series of events, as it so happened to be, as we kind of see this going along, Haman ends up dead, and God's people get to live, or do they? That's where we pick up here in chapter 8. Because we're going to see that this strange Persian law, although that Haman is dead, there's this strange Persian law that remains a death sentence over the people of Israel. 
cruelly intentional so that if he was ever removed from power, that the law would still have to be enacted because it's been stamped with the king's ring. It cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked, even though the mastermind behind it is dead. Yes, Haman is dead. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you're thinking, wait a minute, did we cover that? Did we talk about that? Was that in the text? The answer is yes, it was in the text, but in full disclosure, we also did not get into great detail about Haman's death over the last couple of weeks because there was two weeks where we had a lot of kids in the service. There's a few of you kids in here this morning, but not nearly the numbers that we had. And the idea of it is understanding that there was a lot of things that we could cover in those passages without covering Haman's actual death. The reality is, is that Haman, as the opening of chapter 8 happens, Haman is, is hanging. He has been uh, stabbed through and through. He is on a pole outside of the gates of the city. Right now, that's the setting where Haman is there. He's been impaled as we go into chapter 8. This is what's happening. So as the kids were in the service the last couple of weeks, we weren't exactly sure how to do that. We considered maybe we handed out uh, sticks and marshmallows on the way out and said, here is something for you to take with you this morning, but we decided against that. So we pick up where Brian left off last week. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, the same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, reclaimed from him, as in took it off of his body, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is like the longest day ever. If we look at what's been going on here in this passage, because it's the same day. We see as the chapter begins, it says this is the same day. This is the longest day ever. This day starts with King Xerxes not being able to sleep. And so he, because he cannot sleep, he has the articles brought into him. He says, read me all of what's happened over the last five years. And then after that, as he is reading this, he hears of Mordecai and is reminded again of Mordecai, the way that he was able to protect him from this assassination plot. So, as he realizes early in the morning, Haman happens to come to work early that day and is walking through the court and he is brought into the court and he is asked this question of what would you do for the one that you want to emulate, the one that you want to put up on a pedestal because he has done something great for the king. And he tells him, oh, here's what you need to do. And it turns out, that he's actually talking about Mordecai. And Haman has to walk around the city, parading Mordecai around on the king's horse. This is the same day. Mordecai returns back <coughs> to the gate and gets back to work. Haman goes back home to his home house in humiliation. Haman then that same evening goes to dinner uh, with King Xerxes to the queen's dinner, Queen Esther. And there at dinner, Haman's true colors are exposed. He is shown for who he is. She points him out that this is the man who has caused all of this trouble. And the king, re realizing what has gone on, realizing what he has been up to, and even uh, uh, believing <laughs> that he has uh, made an advance on his, on his wife, the queen, he has him executed there. Mordecai then is brought into the court in the presence of the king and queen. He is given Haman's property. He is given his office as well as the king's signet ring. This is all in the same day. So everything is good, right? All has been saved. Mordecai is safe. Esther is safe. Both have received their recognition and their honor. But what you will notice is missing is that 
King Xerxes has done nothing for their people, for the Jews. Their doom is still coming. Ten months from now, their doom is still coming. The date remains on the calendar. The law will still be enforced. And it's safe to say that the Esther and Mordecai, they are now safe as she is the queen of the kingdom and he is the highest official there in the kingdom. But Haman's edict condemning all the Jews still stands. King Xerxes has done nothing about it. But it would be easy. It would be simple. It would be normal for Esther and Mordecai to move on, to look over their shoulder and say, well, I guess we did the best that we could. If you're one of the Jews living in the region, you might actually seem, it might actually seem as though that's what has happened here. Because for some of you, you might have this as an aside in your Bibles, off to the side. Between verse 2, where I just finished, and verse 3, there is this pause. Between verse 2 and verse 3, there is this pause, there is this silence, and they're marked on the sides because of the dates and the times that are given later in the passage. We know that more than two months pass between verse 2 and verse 3. Two months pass. What is going on here? What we see, what we come across, what we are focusing on this morning is this pivotal moment in the gap, in the break. Because if we trace the story to this point, we see what has happened in the eyes of the king. His eyes have been opened. Xerxes is now able to see Haman for who he really was, the nature of, of this guy who was a conniving criminal, and he was able to come in and appear to be his close and dear friend. He was able to get him very close to him, but it was all for selfish gain, for selfish reasons. So he makes the call, the king does. He gives the order to impale Haman on the very pole that earlier that morning he had set up in place that Mordecai was going to be impaled on. This was the plan that he had had in action. And we trace now the steps that follow that that decision. The steps here that are this, this transfer of power and therefore now a new authority was there in the kingdom. In the pause. In the pivotal moment. This is a magic moment of sorts of possibilities. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in your life and my life, it is very much the moment that we, you and I had, consciously and deliberately, that moment when you gave over yourself to Christ. The authority of self, of self-interest, selfish desires, all being yielded over to the Holy Spirit to, to rightly the sovereign direction of your life, to rightly follow after Christ. This moment, this pause, when, when things settle down and you realize that the trajectory of your life is in front of you, and the next few steps that you are going to take, the next 100 steps, the next 1,000 steps that you are going to take, that you are saying, you are believing that I am following a different authority than I was following just a moment ago. Between verse 2 and verse 3. Ray Stedman is a commentator. He puts it this way. Since the task of the Holy Spirit is to make real in our lives the person of Jesus Christ, this is the moment we first consciously and with permanent intent yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You may have been a Christian for many years. You've never seen clearly before you that He has the right to total authority in every area of your life. Authority 
This transfer of power has happened. And when we look at what has happened in the kingdom, the transfer of power has happened here. That no longer is Haman, no longer is he in power anymore, no longer is he driving things anymore. Now Esther and Mordecai are in power. And what is it they are going to do? Now that the crisis has passed, now that they are out of harm's way, by whose authority will they decide to take a step forward with? How will they move forward? We see here that Esther once again risks her life to appear there before the king. Verse 3, Esther again pleads with the king. This is two months later. Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to this evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. This should sound familiar to you. It's exactly what she did before. And you can recognize this in your own experience if you're a Christian. You come to a place where you have to come and you have to bow. You have to realize that authority has changed, that something is different. The Holy Spirit has made you victorious over your own sin, over what is behind you. And now as you look, as you discover what is going for, are you going to take steps? Are you going to walk through this life with a proper understanding of who's in charge? And so when she comes again, Even though she has full power to do whatever she wants, she comes again into the throne room, understanding that she needs to follow after a higher plan, a higher power, the Lord of the universe. But what she's got going on inside her is this wrestling, this evidence of the flesh, evidence of the sin nature, that there are things that are still broken, things that are still not right. Because this sin nature, the toxicity of the sin nature on the human condition still has its residual effect on your life. This is, it, Haman is dead, and yet there's still the effects of it. It's the law of sin and of death. Let's take a look at that law. If you want to take a few pages, look over this old law of sin and death, specifically in the edict of Haman that leads to death. This is what she is dealing with. Esther chapter 3, I went back a couple chapters, verse 13 and 14. This is review. This is what went out. Verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people, every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. This is still what remains as the old law that is in effect. The old law that was put in effect because of the selfish drive and the selfish desires of humankind, which has the face of Haman here. The same problem is throughout all of humanity. In the New Testament, we read about it in Romans chapter 7. We've experienced this as well, but this is how how the Apostle Paul describes it. He says, I see in my members, he says, I see in my body, I see in, in the way that I am drawn, there's another law at work within my mind, and it's making me captive, he says, to the law of sin because it still has a power. For the very thing that I want to do, I do not do. The thing I should not be doing is what I am doing. How can anyone escape is the question that's there. Here's how Esther describes it. Now I'm back in chapter 8, verse 5. If it pleases the king, she said, 
And if he regards me with favor and thinks in the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let the order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews, all the other king's provinces. But how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replies to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. And he says, because Haman has attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, but they have impaled him on a tree. Now write another decree, he says. And write it in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as it would seem best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed can be revoked. It cannot be revoked. He reminds us of this again. The Medes, the Persians, the way that they wrote their laws, it says they cannot be revoked. Again, here's this New Testament comparison over in Romans. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? is what the Apostle Paul says. In many ways, this is the cry that Esther is saying here as well. She comes before the king the second time. She's saying, oh, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver my people from this law of sin and of death? Once the king's name is uttered, it cannot be revoked. Who will deliver me? What we need, what they need, is a new law. A new law of spirit and of life. If the old law is a law of sin and of death, the new law of spirit and life begins to be written in verse 9. So here's what I'm going to share with you. I want you to keep your eyes on the verses in verse 9. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read for you what is actually the contrast, what's happening verse by verse, line by line, that she is dealing with and Mordecai is dealing with line by line. Every single line of this law is being dealt with line by line from what was made the law by Haman, the law of sin and death in chapter 3, is being revoked line by line and it's being fulfilled in a different way. So what happened in chapter 3 was that the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Here's what happens in chapter 8. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. Over in chapter 3 it says, There was this edict according to all that Haman had commanded, and it was written. And it says here in in chapter 8, They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders back in chapter 3. The king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces to the officials of all the peoples. In verse 8, to the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and all the nobles. In verse 3, to every province in his own script and every people in his own language. Look at the detail of chapter 8. Of all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also in the Jews in their own script and their own language. Back to chapter 3, it was written in the name of King Xerxes, sealed with the king's signet ring. In chapter 8, Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed with the dispatches with the king's signet ring. Verse 13 of chapter 3, letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces, but in verse chapter 8, and it says, and they sent him by monikers who rode fast horses, especially bred for this by the king. Line by line by line by line. Provision is being made with this new law. A new law of spirit that leads to life. Verse 11. The king's edict granted that the Jews in every city had the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, to annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, 
or to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the province of the king's Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month in the month of Adar. So what is happening here is line by line, the new law is fulfilling what the old law said was this condemnation that they must and would be killed. And the main element of that law was that they could not defend themselves. They had no options. And so anyone in all of the kingdom, because the word was sent out to everyone in the kingdom, anyone in all the kingdom could come on that day at that time, and they had full privilege, full right to kill the Jews on sight. When it's reversed line by line, and, and key components of this are the way that the word is being spread, is that the initial law wasn't even sent out to the Jews. The Jews didn't even get the word in their own language as to what it was, what was the edict against them. They didn't even know what it was. But line by line by line, Esther and Mordecai expertly reverse the decree without repealing or revoking the first one. They're just one step ahead of every line. The previous edict gave this idea, this carte blanche for freedom for them to do evil things against them. And it could attack and kill the Jews. And the Jews had no thing, no way to defend themselves. That's the key element here, is that they're able to defend themselves. And what happens is that because of what Mordecai has done here, because of what Esther has done, is that I've given him a fighting chance is basically what happens. Gives him a fighting chance to be able to push back, defend themselves. And the expectation would be that if anyone dared to take advantage of the previous command and kill the Jews, now the Jews were free to return the favor. This was an edict of self-defense. So it balances the scales, but it doesn't stop there. There's actually the old covenant that leads to sin and death, the new law that leads by spirit that leads us to life. We see actually a new way to live here beginning in verse 13. This is what happens. Again, line by line, matching what happened in, in chapter 3, but with more detail. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their en enemies if necessary. So the couriers, verse 14, riding on the royal horses, they went out. They were spurred on by the king's command. And the edict was issued in all the citadel of Susa. So here's some key differences of chapter 3 and chapter 8. It goes by way of repeatedly mentioning over and over again that the edict was going out to every province in the empire. So making sure that every province was well aware of what was going on. It goes on to repeatedly mention again and again and again that it was going to be addressed to the Jews. It was going to be addressed in their own language so they knew what was going to happen. And it goes out to mention the speed by which the message was being sent out. It was going to be delivered at the highest speed possible, that there was something of an emergency that had to be dealt with here. This message was needing to be shared, and it needed to be shared now. Verse 15, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, a, a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. And what a contrast we see here. When the other edict went out, what did we see? We saw Mordecai in the city square covered in burlap. He was covered in ashes. He was moaning and whining, it would appear. But now he is joyous. He is dressed 
in royal colors. He is dressed in royal garments. And the city of Susa is no longer in mourning and chaos. No, the city of Susa has a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. And then 17, in every province, in every city to which the Edith the king came, there was also, so every province begins to spread, there is joy, there is gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities, it says, became Jews, because the fear of the Jews had seized them. Some of the translations may say the fear of the Lord had seized them. This is a great story. We, we, we see that there's some, some vengeance that's been put together here, that we able to see that they are going to fight for themselves, defend themselves. Great, wonderful. What does that have to do with us? I go back to the point that I was making from the book of Romans, is that when we look at the law the law of sin, the law of death, there are no options out. And the choice that they have to take their first steps would say, are we going to take our first steps of freedom, living in the law of death, or doing something about the law of death, or are we going to change something? Are we going to make a change in our lives that's going to take us down a different path? Are we going to trust that the Word of God is going to illuminate and light our path forward. This decree of death, every single person on this planet would fall under the authority of the decree of death. Not just the Jews. In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, and by doing so, the decree of death is over every person that is on this planet. And much that we can say is as a result of the schemes of the enemy, it was a, it was a trick. It didn't matter. It still meant that every person on this planet was still under the law of sin and death. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They handed over the dominion. They were handed over to the dominion of sin and death. Now all of creation is under that decree. Even though it was a dirty trick, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you cannot undo the law. I cannot undo the law. Adam and Eve could not undo the law. Israel, they failed to obey God. They failed to live through that. Every single one of us has lived in sin. And the law says the edict is death. In a similar fashion, what has God done to preserve His people? He must write a new decree, a new law, a new covenant. And in this new law, in this new covenant, He asked His Son to reverse the law, to actually line by line, point by point, actually turn that over and fulfill the law so that you and I, as God's people, would have this option to receive the gift of God. Whereas Adam and Eve, they had rebelled because they wanted to be like God, where, where Jesus then comes along and He obeys God. He does not rebel. He obeys God and gives up His privileges as the creator of the universe and goes humbly as a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus perfectly obeys every aspect of the law. And still, as an innocent man, He must go there as the innocent one and die as a result of the law. By doing so, and by not only dying on the cross for our sins, but being buried and three days later resurrecting and coming back to the way, He defeats the law itself. A new covenant has been made in His blood. And so what happens 
is the result of this, the new law has been written. The old law condemns, the new law has been written. And we stand as new believers, perhaps, or as believers who have followed Christ for year after year after year. Every single day, every single morning, every single step that we take, we have a choice. By which law are we going to follow? Because what happens here is that men get on horses and they spur them on so they can go and tell everyone that they could possibly come into contact with. You have to hear. You don't have to fall under this law anymore. The law of sin and death no longer has control of your life because a new law has been written. A new law that gives you freedom. A new law that gives you life. Every person, every people group in their language, every area, name by name by name, they hurried as fast as they can. The irony is is that we actually see conversion happening at the end of the chapter. We actually see people who are not Israelites becoming Jews because they wanted to become part of this group of people who had been redeemed under this new law. Conversion is happening. Why would anyone ever want to become a Jew knowing the law that had been there previously? They would want to stay as far as they possibly could away from that. But the new law, the new law was something worth sharing with everyone you could hear. As the band comes forward this morning, as we close in our time this morning, the question I have for you is whether or not you're carrying the message whether or not there's a desire in you to tell anyone at all about the freedom that comes in this new law that has been written, this law that leads to life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What we see here are people racing as fast as they possibly can to be able to tell everyone. The Apostle Paul talks about the wrestling that happens within himself. This is the very thing that I want to do, I don't do, the very thing I should be doing. He understands the residual effects of the sin nature, this old law on his life. He says, I want to live my life by a new law. I want to live my life in pursuing a new thing. I have been delivered, and I want to live as such. If you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning, dear Lord, we pray. We pray, Lord, as we've opened your word that it will illuminate a path forward. Illuminate a path forward where, Lord, if there is someone here this morning who is hearing the message for the first time, Lord, they would just grasp a hold of that, hold on to it and say, this, is this the way? Because the, the way that I have been going, it, it feels like it's leading towards death. And if anything, God's Word makes that clear again and again and again, that the pursuits of the flesh, the pursuits of this world, our selfish desires will always lead towards death. So this gift of God offering eternal life, it's the most wonderful story ever shared. But you may be here this morning, you've already accepted that gift years ago. And you've got this pause This pivotal moment in time where you have a choice now to decide whether the next steps that you take, whether you are comfortable, whether you are content with the fact that you, maybe your family, as in Esther and Mordecai, 
you're safe, you're okay. But everyone else around you, everyone else that you come into contact with, they are still under the old law. And they don't even know. They haven't heard or they haven't heard with clarity. They haven't heard in their own tongue or their own language or in a way that resonates with them. They haven't heard. Are you willing to go carry the message? Alert everyone you hear. Pounding hooves on the cobblestone streets, racing through the streets. The message is coming. Now it's time to take this message of life to all others around you. First in Susa is what they did, the city, and then they carried it to the ends of the earth. We are told in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Lord, as we pray to close this morning, let it be our hearts, let it be our desires, first of all, to understand the gift that has been given, the work that has been done on the cross, the tomb and the resurrection, knowing, Lord, that you have written a new law, you have made a new way leading to life. Let us grasp a hold of that this morning. And let us leave with hearts encouraged, hearts on fire for you, and share the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.